12 years ago today, this nation was in the middle of the trial of the century. For only the second time in history, a sitting president had been impeached and was standing trial before the United States Senate. Frankly, it was all a rather torrid affair. But whatever your views on the rights and wrongs, wisdom or otherwise, of the impeachment and ensuing trial, whatever your views about the defendant, President Clinton, I think we could all agree that none of us would have liked to have been in his shoes. It's hard even to imagine what it must have been like to be investigated by a special prosecutor with vast resources and to have your sordid secret sin paraded in the light before your daughter and wife whom you cheated on, never mind the whole world, all in graphic detail. But imagine for a moment if that case 12 years ago was not one brought by the House of Representatives against the President and was not a piece of recent history that we'd all rather forget and not talk about, but instead it was today. But it was not the United States of America versus William Jefferson Clinton, but rather God versus Jonathan Neal Millard. Or God versus you. Now, that would be a, a fearsome thing, don't you think? I mean, God doesn't have a mere $50 million with which to investigate you. He doesn't need it. He actually knew you before you were born. He knows every thought you've ever had. He knows what words you have said before you even said them. He knows all your secrets, actions, words, even thoughts. He knows them all. Well, this is the scene in our Old Testament reading of all the images we find in the Bible of God. This is perhaps one that we are the least familiar with and one that we might wish wasn't in the pages of this book. Because here it is, God as prosecutor. Israel is in the dock. The jury is creation itself. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people. And he will contend with Israel. This is a very public trial before creation itself. God's dealings with his covenant people are open and transparent for all the world to see. And God declares that his people should stand trial. God has a controversy, a case against his people. And the call on the mountains to see this reminds us that the most ancient of witnesses, the earth itself, has witnessed God's covenants with his people. But what are the charges? 
What is the controversy God has with his people? Well, Micah, the prophet, lived in the later part of the 8th century BC, a time when the divided kingdoms of Judah and Israel were experiencing great wealth and prosperity. And with that came godlessness, apathy, exploitation of the poor, and mere lip service to God. Any of those things could have been the charges then or now. But what stands out in our passage this morning is that having summoned Israel to the dock and called upon the mountains to serve as the jury, God does not present the defendant with a list of charges that he so easily could have done. Instead, the courtroom drama takes a rather unexpected turn. It shifts in verse 3. Oh, my people, says the Lord. It suddenly gets rather personal. Indeed, this appeal no longer sounds like that of prosecuting counsel, but more like that of a father to his son or a husband to his wife. There is no list of grievances. You have done this, you are always doing that, and you never do the other. Have you ever said things like that against someone you're not happy with? Well, that's not how it is with God. Instead, we see the plea of a loving God whose heart has been broken by the rejection and betrayal of his people. Instead of itemizing their sins against him, God says, What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? You see, the sad fact was, God's people were bored with God. They were sick of worshipping him. It it all become a bit of a drag. They weren't really interested in God anymore. And so God says, what have I done? How have I let you down that has made it all seem so tedious for you? And Israel is silent. Maybe they were too busy texting or rolling their eyes, thinking, oh, here comes a lecture. Answer me, God says. I'm talking to you. Are you listening? The irony is that, is that if anyone had a right to be weary, it was God. In Isaiah chapter 43, we read this, "'You have been weary of me, O Israel.'" You have not honored me with your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. In the midst of their comfort and success and their security and their wealth, God's people had become bored with their worship. They'd reached a point where they really couldn't be bothered too much anymore. I wonder, are we ever guilty of that? Do you ever pray or read the Bible or come to church as a chore? Something to get out of the way? Maybe you've got better things to do, more exciting places to be or people to talk to. Maybe you want more time on Facebook or you need to get your homework done. Or you have a paper to write, a meeting to attend, a movie to see, an appointment that's so, so important. 
Well, that's pretty much how it was for the people of Israel in the late 8th century BC. Listen to what God says to them and by extension to us. He reminds them of his love for them and what he has done for them. Verse 4. I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. That's what the Passover festival was all about. An annual reminder of this great saving event. And it wasn't given as a mere ritual or duty or chore. And for us, our Passover festival is what we've come here to do together this morning as we celebrate the Eucharist. We do that, yes, because Jesus told us to, but we do that not out of mere obedience, but because as we break the bread and pour the wine, we do so in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Do this, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Do you? Are you fully present this morning? Are you listening for God? Will you remember and give thanks to God for all he has done for you? If you're bored, wake up. Pay attention. The sad thing is, I think very often we kind of take it all for granted. It is possible to come to church because, well, that's what we do on a Sunday morning. We see our friends, maybe we have lunch with someone afterwards, we go to a meeting or a class, and we become so familiar with the liturgy and the hymns and each other that we kind of drift through it. Sure, we know God has rescued us from sin, we believe that. But we can become so caught up in the busyness of our lives, or even just their routines, that actually we turn our focus away from God. Pastor and theologian David Pryor writes, God had always found it easier to get the people out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of his people. Yes, God has saved us from sin and the world, but we rather like sin and the world. God says, I have redeemed you. I have saved you. I have rescued you. I love you. I sent my one and only son to die for you. And what do we sometimes say, if not in words, but by our actions? Yeah, right, whatever, know that. Oh, my people, oh, my people, God says. Remember, remember, I sent you great leaders, men and women like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Remember how I brought you out of Egypt. Remember King Balak and Balaam. Actually, you might not remember Balak and Balaam. Uh, That's okay, but they should have remembered. You can read all about them in Numbers chapter 24. I'll give you a two-sentence version. The people of Israel were approaching the promised land, and King Balak wanted Balaam to curse the people. But an angel visited Balaam. It's a great story, actually. Do read it. And instead of cursing God's people, Balaam ended up blessing God's people. And Micah says, remember that? 
And remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. And that covers virtually all the events that we can read about in the book of Joshua. The fact of the matter is that throughout history, God has shown by word and action that he loves his people. Time and time again, he had rescued them, helped them, guided and forgiven them. Do you know this? Have you read all that God has done for us? You know, if you've never read this book, it's a Bible. <laughs> read it! You know, I've, I've decided to read it all the way through again this year. And, um, and I'm one month in. And I'm loving it. It's a fantastic read. Well, m- most of it is. But but what I've been reminded of as I've been reading in Genesis again is that God's saving acts are not isolated incidents of the past, but rather examples of the kind of God he still is today. It's so important that we know the stories in this book. In here, you will find betrayal, Failure, selfishness, jealousy, disappointment, waiting, war, famine, disaster, love, lust, family, kids, rape, murder, plots, intrigue. It's all in here. And God says to his people through the prophet Micah, remember these things that you may know the saving acts of God. And it's not mere head knowledge. It's not some dry history textbook. This kind of knowing is a deep, visceral knowledge of God's love. Well, as the people who Micah was addressing remember, as they realize their foolishness and how distracted and decadent they've been, they finally get it. Verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord? What can I possibly do to make amends for my disrespect and my lack of love for God? Well, I say they get it. They only half get it. I think they are convicted in their souls by the words of God in his prosecution. But they fail to understand what the right response should be. So we see them wondering what they should do. Well, they they could bow down. Uh, They could bring burnt offerings. Uh, Maybe they could bring really special burnt offerings. Maybe the Lord would be pleased with thousands of rams. Or maybe ten thousands of rivers of oil. It's starting to get ridiculous. Maybe that would do it. Or in desperation and contrary to God's law, they say in verse 7, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Enough already, Micah responds. God's already told you. In the message, Eugene Peterson puts it this way. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God is looking for in men and women. It's quite simple. Do what is fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. Just like the people in Micah's day, we cannot refute the charges brought against us. 
All of us have fallen short of God's standards. Not one of us is without sin. We all stand guilty as charged. But hear this. We can be restored and forgiven by accepting God's love. And as recipients of his love and grace, we can walk humbly with our maker. And that humble walk or life with God will be evidenced by, what, by, by right actions and right attitudes. The starting point for all of us is to stop fooling around. There's absolutely no point in denying our guilt before God. And it's utterly futile to think that somehow, by our own efforts at being good, we can put right the untold damage and harm that our sinfulness and our selfishness causes. There's nothing we can ever do to achieve that. This is the reality check for us this morning. We can't pay God back. But you don't need to. Because God pays. The final courtroom picture for you this morning is this. God is the just judge. And he's also, in this example, the prosecutor. But he's something more. For he is the one who takes the place of the defendant. He comes out from behind the judge's seat... And instead of being the prosecutor, he sets all that aside and he stands in the dock and he says, move over. I'll take it from here. And he takes my place and yours. He pays the price for my sin and yours. God takes our guilt and shame and punishment, and Jesus pays for it all. So God is not seeking a pound of flesh from you. He's not out to get you and punish you, though judgment and separation from God is what will come to all who reject him. But what God wants is for us to listen to him, to come to him, to receive from him, And in response to his love, not take it for granted, not to become apathetic and bored, but rather to do what he's asking us to do. So what does the Lord require of you? To do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That's the response that God asks of you. These three things represent three vital areas of our lives. Our conduct, our character, and our communion with God. So very briefly and to finish, let me say a word about each one. First, our conduct. We are to act justly. Not only in public, but all the time. Our conduct is to be consistent and fair at home. At home. At school, at work, in our families, with our friends, and even with our enemies. Second, our character. We are to love kindness or mercy, as it's often translated. 
Now, of course, we like mercy and kindness for ourselves. But for others, well, we'd sooner have justice, I dare say. Thankfully, God does not treat us as we deserve. And as Jesus tells us, we are to treat others as we would like to be treated ourselves. Third, our communion with God. Walking humbly with God concerns our relationship with him. The only way we can ever have any kind of meaning relationship with anyone is by spending time with them. And so we need to spend time with God through our daily prayers, through reading his word to us. And of course, week by week, as we gather together here and we remember what he's done for us. So, how do you respond to God's plea to you today? And remember this, he he desires not mere compliance, but rather your love. I pray that you will know God's love and grace and that your response will be to receive his forgiveness and then to go out from here and do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Amen.